Hello! Welcome to the Healthy Habits Happy Home Podcast, hosted by the Guelph Family Health Study. If you're interested in the most recent research and helpful tips for healthy, balanced living for you and your family, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we will bring you topics that are important to your growing family and guests who will share their expertise and experience with you. Our quick tips will help your family build healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome back to the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. I'm Marcy Ann. And I'm Tamara. And today we're really excited to have Dr. Kate Bauer join us. Dr. Kate Bauer is an associate professor of nutritional sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And last year, she served as the Fulbright Canada Research Chair in Food Security at the University of Guelph. Dr. Bauer's research focuses on social and behavioral determinants of children's eating and growth, with particular attention to supporting effective parenting and healthy food environments for young children. Welcome, Dr. Bauer. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. To get us started, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your current role, and how your education and experiences have led you to where you are now? Sure. Uh, Gosh, I could talk about this for an entire podcast. (laughs) Let's see. I can talk about where I am now and go backwards a bit. So as you mentioned, right, I'm a faculty member at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. I study families and children and children's healthy eating and really am interested in both, you know, sort of how parenting affects children. So a, a little bit of the shoulds and shouldn'ts of parenting, but even more so I'm interested in how do we support effective, healthy parenting, right? So I try to come at my research from the perspective that all parents want what's best for their children. And most parents sort of know what is best or better for their children, right? There's a, there's a lot of information out there about, you know, screen time and healthy eating habits and things like that. But then there's all this other stuff that gets in the way. So like today, we're going to talk about self-regulation capacity as something that potentially gets in the way of healthy parenting. I also study things like food security. So how does the experience of parents being stressed, not being able to access enough food, sort of trying to navigate the system, how does that affect parenting and how they feed their children? I have another line of research that's thinking about weight bias and and how does bias directed at parents affect how they parent their children and how they relate to their child around food. So really broadly, again, it's my real interest is, you know, how can we set up our policies, our environments, our communities to encourage healthy food and weight-related parenting. I got here. In some ways, it was sort of a direct route, and in some ways, it was sort of circuitous. So I was a psychology major in undergrad. I went to a small liberal arts college, and I always thought I wanted to do psychology. And I actually applied for clinical PhD programs right out of undergrad and got denied from all of them. Recently, I realized I actually applied to a PhD program at Michigan and got denied. And I also recently realized that like 10 years ago, I applied for a different job at Michigan and got denied. So apparently I had to try three times to um, 
become employed by the University of Michigan. (laughs) But yeah, so undergrad in psychology. And my first job was actually in Boston at a hospital. It was working on a research study to help pregnant women quit smoking. And so I was doing all these home visits. I was a research assistant collecting data from moms. I will always tell people like I had to collect infant urine. So I changed a lot of diapers and and squeezed out diapers to get the pee out. So I did the job. You know, those RAs who are out there like measuring kids, collecting survey data, like I have been there. And I thought what I was doing was psychology, right? It's like counseling, you know, moms around health. And I realized, and this was now 25 years ago, eventually I realized what I was doing, you know, there was some psychology to it, but it actually was public health. I had never heard of public health as a field. And I really realized that, oh, that's actually what I want to do. I want to think about the intersection of psychology and sociology and families and, you know, policies and children's health behaviors. And also at that time, you know, there was an increasing emphasis on nutrition and obesity. And, you know, for the first time we were talking about children's weight and everything. Um, So things just sort of came together to where, let's see, I ended up getting a master's degree in public health. I then wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So I worked for the U.S. National Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, for a few years. I actually, in that role, coming back to pee and poop i worked <laughs> i worked in there <laughs> i worked in their um, recreational water division so we did monitoring of swimming pools and like you know like bacterial Ooh. outbreaks in swimming pools so i actually have a i have a research paper published one of my first on the the prevalence of poop contamination in swimming pools across the United States. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I did not continue in that field. But anyway, then I just, I eventually realized after working for the CDC and a little time at a local health department, I was much more interested in the research side of public health and wanted to be the one asking the questions versus, you know, the sort of day-to-day management of projects. Now I sort of regret that because I feel like, <laughs> I don't know, day-to-day management is hard, but uh, being a professor is is pretty hard too. So anyway, I went back and got my PhD in epidemiology, and that's where I met you know your esteemed director, Dr. Jess Haynes. She and I did our PhDs together. And yeah, you know, since then really have, again, focused on children and families and nutrition. And I think, you know, even more so as time goes on, really thinking about social and policy levers to impact parenting. So that that is either the long or the short story. I'm not sure. (laughs) That's That's, Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, clearly you bring a wealth of knowledge and experience with you today. So we're very, very lucky to have you on. Um, And if anybody's interested about the contaminants of pool water, right? There's always that. They can look that journal article. Well, let me just tell you. Do not swim in a hotel pool. I my my family is going to a hotel next week. We have to. My daughter has a sporting event, and I am like, you are not bringing your bathing suits because we are not <laughs> getting in that pool. Don't even think about it. <laughs> you know too much now. <laughs> too much, yes. <laughs> 
So you mentioned too that today we're going to talk about parental self-regulation. So as a researcher, what really motivated you to study this particular aspect of parenting and its impact on children's growth and eating? Yeah. So over the past few years, there's been in general a rise in the role of self-regulation. Sometimes it's also called executive function. So what? let me take a, a minute to sort of define things. So by self-regulation, what I'm talking about is our ability to control our emotions, our thoughts, and our behaviors to achieve what we've set out to achieve, a goal-directed behavior. And so executive function is part of that. Executive function is some, you know, I feel like increasingly we're hearing about executive function in terms of like kids with ADHD or, you know, teenagers sometimes struggle with executive function or adults, right? And they sort of get distracted. And so the idea of executive function is it's this set of cognitive processes and it determines, you know, how flexible are you in your thinking? How much can you resist impulses to sort of stay on track? What is your working memory like? Are you able to sort of take in new information and update it? And again, this is all with the goal of staying on task. Okay, so broadly, there's been an increasing recognition that individuals who struggle with self-regulation have poor quality diets and are at greater risk for obesity and also actually have sort of less success in weight management programs or post-bariatric surgery. And you can imagine why, right? Like if you struggle with impulse control, you may be more likely to, you know, a good show comes on TV and you're like, oh, I'm going to do that instead of go for a run or with food prompts, right? And there's a lot of things that go into this, but some people have a harder time, you know, saying, oh, no, I, I really, you know, I don't want to eat that right now. I want to, you know, save my hunger for lunch or whatever. And some people are like, mm-hmm. can't sort of resist the impulse and others can So anyway, there was this growing body of research among both adults and children that their personal self-regulation capacity impacted their diet and weight. The implication of that was that could we do things to strengthen people's Mm self-regulation as an intervention strategy to improve nutrition and weight? So this is all going on. And honestly, you know, a couple colleagues and I were chatting a few times and this idea of parent self-regulation came up, right? And and that if we know that individuals with weaker self-regulation struggle with their own dietary and weight goals, is there reason to believe that parents with lower self-regulation have more trouble setting up home environments that support their children's healthy eating or engaging in, you know, food parenting practices that support children's healthy eating. So this this really was intriguing to me, this question, because again, it goes to the heart of what I care about, which is, you know, it's not about teaching parents or it's not all about teaching parents what's right and wrong in terms of, you know, raising healthy kids. It's really about how can we develop supports for parents that increase their capacity to 
accomplish the things they want to accomplish. And with all these ideas together, I started thinking about, well, self-regulation is one of those things, right? You know, yes, it's an individual level characteristic, but it's something that we can do better supporting by setting up our environments, by giving people different kinds of supports, by providing, you know, uh, health and nutrition information in different ways. So, yeah, it just sort of evolved through conversations with colleagues and and where, you know, the literature was heading in general. And we started some pilot work. We started collecting some data and saying, you know, is this, do we have something here? Is there some validity to these hypotheses? And we learned very much so. And then, you know, it's sort of built and we now actually have a few funded projects to collect really in-depth data to tease apart the questions of in what ways does parent self-regulation impact parenting and ultimately children's obesity risk. Wow. I took so many notes. Thank you for explaining that, like the self-regulation, the executive function. I've heard that word executive function, but I, I've never really understood like what it meant. So thank you for breaking that down. Yeah. Um, how does it influence a child's development from early childhood through adolescence, this uh, executive functioning and self-regulation of the parents? Yeah. So actually, once we started exploring this idea of does, does parent self-regulation actually have an impact on children? We realize that predominantly in the developmental psychology literature, there were a good number of studies trying to understand the question of how does parent self-regulation impact children in general? So no one was really looking at diet outcomes, but they have looked at other outcomes among children, like children's own self-regulation development, right? Which you can then say eventually impacts their own diets. They were also looking at, you know, children's sort of behaviors and, you know, pro-social behaviors and ability to you know, behave well in social settings, in classroom settings. And from developmental psychology, we we got evidence, we could see in these studies that parents with stronger self-regulation themselves engaged in sort of more positive parenting in general, right? So they were less likely to engage in harsh or potentially violent parenting. They are better able to set up scaffolding for their child, right? They're better able to sort of break activities down and they they have more patience with their children, better, you know, influence better academic outcomes in their children. And so again, there's sort of this background body of research, related body of research that says, Parent self-regulation matters to child development. It both helps children develop their own self-regulation capacity and helps children in these other aspects of life where emotional and behavioral control is really important. So again, that sort of led us to, well, it seems like these things really probably matter to child diet and weight, but no one is studying it. So it seems like an area ripe for new research. Yeah, definitely. And it's so interesting too, because it seems like it's pretty well established that parental self-regulation does 
matter to child development. Yeah. And so just like going through the the parental self-regulation part and maybe going a bit backwards, I'm sure that through your research too, you've likely uncovered various factors that impact parental self-regulation itself. So what are some of those factors that parents should be aware of when they're trying to foster a positive impact on their child's development? Yes. So self-regulation is very much a nature and nurture thing. So about half of our variation, like between person variation and self-regulation is due to genetics and heredity. So, you know, there's definitely something biological, definitely something genetic that gets passed down between families. You can also think, right, as we're talking about, you know, as we're saying that sort of some of that familial influence is passed down by modeling behavior or, you know, the ability of parents to scaffold healthy development in their children, right? So if parents are themselves, you know, emotionally, I was going to say labile, I think that's the right word, (laughs) Um, you know, have difficulty sort of controlling emotions, may have outbursts, Um, they may be, you know, rigid in their thinking. Those are the things they're modeling for their children. And, you know, right, when we're young in particular and we see our parents behaving in a certain way, you believe that's, you know, the way to behave. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely a way that that parents pass self-regulation down to children, and then obviously those children become parents. So that's another pathway through which our own self-regulation forms. There's also these social and economic influences. So it's been found that lifetime experience of poverty and economic hardship is a real risk factor for weakened self-regulation, right? It, it comes down to this idea, sort of, you know, this weathering hi- the hypothesis that if you are constantly or your whole life have been struggling, have been stressed, have been, you know, always sort of on the lookout, worried, you know, are you going to have enough food to eat? Are you going to be able to have secure housing, all those things, that really wears away at our ability to self-regulate. And it's not to say, you know, that's anyone's destiny or anything like that, but just on average, right, it's really, really hard to to grow up in poverty and to try to live and to try to parent in poverty. And that impacts our self-regulation. And then in general, right, so things like stress, you know, like, if you've got a loved one who's going through a difficult time, or again, you're you're worried about your housing, you're worried about your employment, that definitely weakens your capacity to self-regulate behavior. It's kind of one of those duh comments, right? Because we all know <laughs> if you have a lot going on, you're upset about something, you're stressed, you're under pressure, right? I, I think we can all feel like, we become more impulsive with our behavior or our emotions are much more on the surface, right? And we're sort of quicker to have outbursts. You know, your brain, you just, it just makes it hard to focus when we're stressed. And so for that reason, right, stress in general is a real barrier to self-regulation, but also things like physical activity and sleep can improve self-regulation. So definitely sleep. I mean, 
right? And again, another duh comment, right? Like when you're exhausted, (laughs) your ability to manage your emotions and your behavior goes way down. We even know, you know, if you have a sort of highly palatable food put in front of you when you're tired, you're going to be more likely to eat it and you're going to be more likely to eat more of it. So, you know, if you are someone who feels like they struggle with self-regulation, with impulse control, with behavior, you know, sort of following through on the behaviors that you set for yourself, I honestly think sleep and get, making sure you're getting enough sleep and finding ways to reduce stress in your life are, are probably some of the best things you can start with. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think you know, I don't have kids yet, but even just from a, a older sibling perspective, when I don't get sleep, yes, I've had to apologize for <laughs> certain ways I've talked to them that I'm like, I'm sorry. But, and I think even the other factors that you talked about too, stress, and if a family is in poverty, there's so many factors that affect it. And, you know, I can tend to be a guilty soul, and I'm sure I'm not the only one out there. There's probably a good number of parents who are who are out there. And so I think even just acknowledging those factors too, just give parents like a little more grace on yourself because, you know, stress really does wear at us and worry. And if you are in this constant like survival mode state, it makes sense that like self-regulation would be more difficult. So I just hope our listeners can like give themselves some grace if that is anything that they're Absolutely. I mean, I read somewhere, I'm not going to get this quote right, that, you know, poverty and and trying to raise a family in poverty is harder than any job you could ever have, right? You're constantly trying to do what's best for your kids and trying to do better for yourself. And, you know, at least in the U.S. and somewhat in Canada, our systems are really Mm -hmm. not designed to help people get out of it. And we put up tons of barriers and tons of expectations of families so they can get the resources they need. And it is absolutely exhausting. Um, But that's a whole different podcast, probably. (laughs) I know. (laughs) That's its own podcast in and of itself. (laughs) Wow. Well, the next question we have for you is, as children grow older, They start to explore their own independence and make decisions for themselves. So how does parental self-regulation play a role in their emotional and cognitive growth? Yeah, you know, I I think we touched on this a little earlier, but it it plays a big role. So some of that self-regulation is going to move from parents to children through genetics and biology. But a lot of it is going to move through the way we set up environments for children and how um, we model behavior. So, you know, again, parents who struggle with self-regulation, emotional self-regulations, they may have outbursts. They uh, don't have as much patience, patience with their child. You know, first of all, that's, again, modeling that behavior for your child. And it's also probably not meeting the needs of the child, right? If a ch- let's say a child is struggling with something themselves and and they're tantruming, you know, maybe they're hungry, maybe they're tired, maybe they're frustrated, right? Little kids get frustrated a lot because they they have big goals that they can't they can't always com- accomplish. They don't have the you know the physical or uh, 
intellectual ability to accomplish all that they want. And so if a parent, you know, it's we talk a lot in feeding about responsive feeding and responsive parenting. It's about responsive parenting, right? So if if a parent is struggling to control their thoughts, feelings, behaviors, then it's less likely they're going to respond sort of appropriately or in ways that a struggling parent or struggling child needs them to. And then there really becomes this disconnect. And, you know, any parent, and I have two kids myself, knows that things just tend to cycle or spiral out from there, right? A parent is struggling. A child is struggling. Neither is mm-hmm. meeting the other's needs. And it it tends to not go well. So, and I, I do want to say, you know, yes, for all the parents out there, I don't want to make anyone, this is not about individual, like, being better or controlling themselves better, right? Like, we all fluctuate in our ability to self-regulate. And we actually even fluctuate with different self-regulation skills. You know, some people are really good at controlling emotions and don't have outbursts, but they may not be very flexible in thinking, right? They may not be able to problem solve and overcome challenges in the way that someone else can. And so, you know, I this is not, A, it's not a parent's fault, And it's also not set in stone that we can learn skills and strategies so parents can regulate those thoughts and behaviors and emotions better and respond to their child better and sort of help that child scaffold their own self-regulation skills better over time. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really important to mention, too, that we all fluctuate in our abilities to self-regulate. You know, even th- something like stress can be so like mobile, right? You can have like higher stress months, lower stress months, and all those things would affect your ability to self-regulate for sure. And it's important too to keep in mind that it's not set in stone um, and it can get better. So I guess related to that, too, in terms of parents, maybe if they want to or they're curious in how to regulate themselves better and respond better in these situations, how can parents empower children to make healthy choices and develop a strong sense of their own self-regulation? All right. There's There's a lot of links in that question. So... So, I mean, what our research, where our research is focusing really on the parent self-regulation. So I would say that that is step one, right? It's sort of that old, you know, I mean, it's like the old airplane adage, but then it applies to parents so much is like, put on your own oxygen mask before helping your children, right? Mm -hmm. So, So probably one of the best things that parents can do, and this is not research tested yet, is take time for themselves, right? Like if you need to get more sleep, that's like one of the best things that you can do for your child. If you, you know, we hear a lot about parents, you know, using yoga or using meditation or finding something else that brings them joy and calmness and lets them have some sense of control over their world. Those are all really good things that help with our self-regulation. I don't know. I just think about even myself in my own life and sort of all the things I've got on my plate. And something that I want to do better is asking other people for help, right? Like I think a lot of women in particular feel like they need to do everything and need to be that superwoman. And and our, our plates are just too full. And that's sort of a real risk factor in a way for 
you know, weakening our self-regulation capacity and and bringing to the surface some of those more impulsive or, or less adaptive behaviors. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, so that's what I would say. Parents take care of themselves first. And then I think, you know, in the moment with parenting, again, it's about if you feel like it's possible, really helping your child to verbalize and understand their think their thought process, right? And talk it through with them. And I know this is frustrating, but, you know, we can't do this right now. I know you really wanted this. Like, I think there's, again, that's that scaffolding and sort of naming, trying to name, especially for little kids, what's what's going on in their heads and, and what they want. And I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a developmental psychologist, to be honest, but I, I have seen with my own, with my own children and my own parenting, like we just try to be really transparent, right? About like, this is what I'm struggling with, or I see you struggling with this. Let me help you. Or no, you know, we, we can't get what we want all the time. And like, we're not going to tantrum about it. We're going to find more productive ways and sort of supporting our kids that way. And right for our kids too, making sure they're getting enough sleep, making sure they have sufficient downtime and that they're not being, you know, pushed to their limits. Like school can be really overwhelming for kids. You're expected to be there six, seven hours a day and control your feelings, control your thoughts, right? You're not allowed to blurt answers out. You're not allowed to like poke that other kid who's bugging you. You have to like control your body. Um, or whatever, bite that other kid. <laughs> and that's a lot for little kids. And so, you know, making sure that I think in after school time that kids, you know, you help your kids find ways to sort of de-stress and, and understand that, you know, we all like, okay, I'll just say this about screens. You know, I know we all in general, believe or know that kids and and grown-ups should be reducing screen time. But I also feel like, you know what, if that is your kids or your way of chilling out and like gaining some control over your day and just sort of letting go of all of those, everything you're holding in, right? Everything you've been forced to like resist all day, then I think that's okay. When my kids were little, I would be totally fine with them watching a couple shows after school because I was like, that's the way that I chill out by turning off my brain. Why do I expect my kids to go to like seven hours of school and then some lesson and then be well behaved at dinner and then do bedtime? Like, it's just too much. I just think, you know, we all need to be easier on ourselves and, and easier on our kids. Yeah, definitely. It does sound like taking some of that pressure off to be like perfect. Like I feel like there's a lot of that expectation too with parenting, like perfect parenting and mothering ideals and stuff. Yes. I mean, I think social media obviously um, doesn't really help with that, but it sounds like overall just taking off a bit of that pressure would just do so much good. Yeah. I have to say is now my kids are 15 and 11. There are general things that matter for our children, right? Obviously, We want to raise our children in safe, secure environments where we can sort of minimize our children's stress. Like they never have to worry, hopefully, if there's enough food to eat or they never have to worry about Mm -hmm. bills or whatever. But I honestly feel like above and beyond that, it's just like 
I used to, I said to some neighbor friends a few years ago who had much littler kids than me, I was like, I think that once you sort of meet kids' basic needs, we have control over like 5% of the variability in their outcomes, right? Like, (laughs) if that, like we are not as parents totally determining our kids' trajectories. They come out who they are. And what we need to do is set up their environments as much as we can for success, but recognize that a lot of this extra stuff that parents put pressure on, our kids are going to be fine. They're going to be just fine. And so take a little time, moms and dads and other caregivers, to take care of your own needs because, you know, we're in this for the long run and it does not make sense to drive yourself crazy. It just, our kids will be fine. (laughs) That's the motto. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah, I think it, it definitely sounds like striking that balance with what works best for your family, I think is really important to consider. With that, with that being said, like, there's so many different parenting styles out there, and they can vary widely from some relying on more control, while others might encourage more autonomy among their kids. So how can parental self-regulation, like, strike this balance between providing guidance but also fostering independence in a child's decision-making? So that's a really interesting question to think about how our self-regulation strengths and weaknesses sort of map onto our different parenting styles. So we can think about, you know, generally we think about four different parenting styles with authoritative, where we set up rules and expectations for our children, but we're still responsive to specific situations and their needs. And and we allow, you know, back and forth. There's authoritarian where we set up more, you know, these, these strict rules and expectations. And there's less of letting the child's sort of requests or, or needs determine those limits. We can think of lax or very permissive where we're like super responsive to par- to our children, sorry, and don't have many rules. <laughs> and then we can think of, can't think of the name of the last one, but right, <laughs> where where we sort of don't have rules and we're not responsive and we're, we're disengaged. Okay. So that's the, the very quick and probably incorrect overview of parenting styles. So if we were to think about <laughs> parent self-regulation capacity, right? I think about, again, you know, parents who have higher self-regulation capacity are, you know, they're better able to control their emotions, right? So particularly in high stress, emotionally difficult situations, not that they never show emotions, but that they are able to take that step and sort of think before they speak or before they act out their emotions. Maybe they're not yelling at their kids as much from stress. Maybe they're not crying or or getting mad or, or sad or something like that. We can also think about, again, controlling behavior. So things like yeah, not like you may really feel like disciplining your child or or you know, establishing that sharp boundary, but you know, if we are doing more authoritative parenting, again, we have that ability to sort of stop and be like, this is my desired behavior, but but maybe I can be flexible in this situation. And maybe I can be responsive to what my kid needs in this situation and sort of attend to them and check in with them and ask what's going on. So actually, right, I can see a lot of 
of similarities of how these concepts of self-regulation map onto parenting. And, and overarchingly, if we are able to think flexibly, adjust, plan, incorporate new information, not act only on emotion, not act only on impulse, probably we're going to fall more into that authoritative parenting style where, again, it's fine to have rules. It's good to have rules. Children need rules and boundaries, but we're not just sort of blindly implementing those rules. We're able to take a breath, assess the situation, and adapt. So yeah, I think that I think that if we were, were to strengthen our self-regulation, whether it's through, again, getting more sleep, reducing our stress, doing meditation, maybe going to therapy, whatever it is, I think we'd move more into that authoritative parenting style, which in general is recommended. No, thank you for that. That was as you were talking, you know, and you were like, you know, to be flexible and be responsive, check in. I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. Like that executive. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ooh, full circle. But it also. They're like, kind of one in the same. Right? <laughs> but it, it was really interesting because you like brought a memory back to my mind. Like one parenting doesn't ever stop so thank you parents for still parenting me as a grown adult um because I saw this very plainly like used by my mom and her recent visit uh to Canada we were doing Mm. something and you know I had planned a trip and like all these fun things and I'm exhausted because life doesn't stop as well and plans kind of like switched last minute and I kind of like like glitched a little. I was like, what, what do you mean? And it made me like stressed. And Mm -hmm. I started like acting like what in those times I start to go more inward and more quiet. And then it's like, um, like buzzkill, like the mood is like going down. And so my mom noticed that and noticed that I was kind of withdrawing a bit and was like, all right, she needs space. (laughs) And my boyfriend was there as well. So she's like, let's just give her space. Like, let's just let her walk. And then after a while she came back and was like, Hey, like, I see what you're trying to do and it's okay. Like in us being flexible, because you know plans change we also like are encouraging you to be flexible too that it's still okay and we saw your effort so like this doesn't reflect badly I was taking it personally so she's like this doesn't reflect badly on you let's just do the new plans and I was like I'm 26 years old and my mom is still you know parenting me and all that stuff but you know through her being able to self-regulate she was able to like Mm -hmm. help me and it's just like that that just brought that memory back to mind and I am taking notes (laughs) for the future yeah no that's really great because I also tend to be someone you know particularly on trips like that or people visiting I you know I want it to be great and perfect and I inevitably Mm -hmm. plan too much and get too tired and that's a really good, right? And it doesn't have to be your parents. It has to be, I don't know. I'm yeah. just thinking about, you know, our good friend again, Jess Haynes. Like when we hang out with each other, you know, we're just easy on each other. And so the agenda doesn't mm-hmm. go the way you want or so you're done for the day and you go home. And it's really important to be around people who, you know, they know you and they know that you get stressed or struggle with that flexibility, and they can sort of step in. And this is actually, it brings up another aspect of self-regulation and 
child nutrition that we're looking at is how co-parents or partners, like significant others, regulate each other, right? Mm. So, I mean, so far, a lot of what I've been talking about is moms because we do tend to do research with moms and moms tend to be the ones who like sign up for studies and everything. We are actually also in our studies starting to also survey co-parents. So someone mom identifies that parents their child with them, if if that person exists, and assess that person's self-regulation. And ultimately, we're going to be looking at, you know, how does it work in couple dyads if both struggle with weaker self-regulation? What about where couples are mismatched, right? So is one partner able to sort of shoulder the self-regulation needs of the family you know, if if the other can't, can't, or is if there's conflict or there's disagreement between self-regulation strategies, does that end up in a more chaotic home environment? And I don't have an answer yet. And there's very little information on this question, but it's something that we get a lot of like, okay, so mom has weaker self-regulation, you know, because of her genetics or because of her early childhood experience or whatever can another parent or another caregiver in the home sort of make up for that. And so hopefully we'll have the answer to that question. Right. That's, yeah, yeah. that's super interesting. Now I'm like, we're going to have to have you back. Exactly. Like, yeah, we've yes. got it. Once you've got the answer, we've got to figure, we've got to dive into that on the next, yeah. on the next podcast. Maybe there we go. Yep, future, future idea. Yeah. And you brought up food and eating now too. So it actually segues perfectly to the next uh, few questions we had for you too. So how does parental self-regulation influence a child's relationship with food and eating patterns? And are there any specific behaviors or practices that parents can adopt to positively shape their child's eating habits? Yeah. What we have found so far is that, and and all of our research so far is cross-sectional, right? So it's at one point Mm -hmm. in time. And yet we know that families are really dynamic and, you know, that that there's sort of these bi-directional relationships. So if there's sort of chaos or stress in the home, that's probably going to influence parent and child self-regulation, which then sort of cycles and probably leads to more chaos and, and, Mm Or functioning. But anyway, so I just with that disclaimer that we don't know, you know, cause and effect, chicken and egg, what we are <laughs> seeing is that parents with weaker self-regulation capacity report less frequent family meals. They report less structure and sort of consistency and rules around or expectations, I guess you could say, around family meals. So we 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 did an early study that showed that. Now, some of our more recent data, fresh off the off the press, actually, it's not even off the press yet. <laughs> it's off of my statisticians. <laughs> yes. We're actually seeing even stronger associations between parent self-regulation and their child's sleep environments. So questions mm-hmm. around do you have a regular bedtime for your child? Do they do you have a you know a set bedtime routine? Is the child's you know, going to sleep without a screen, you know, all these behaviors that that we try to support parents in engaging in, we see that that moms with weaker self-regulation are less likely to report those things. And again, you know, you could think about 
cause and effect or even potentially, you know, what we might call a, a confounding factor. See, this is a little epidemiology lesson, right? So maybe there's something else going on in the home that's super stressful, that's, you know, emotionally exhausting. Maybe there's economic challenges. Maybe there's housing challenges. And so maybe those things are both weakening mom's self-regulation capacity and lending themselves to a more chaotic sleep environment. We still have to test that, which is actually making me think I need to adjust some of my analyses. So there, there, that may certainly can be the case. And it could also be that like, right, when you have a more difficult, challenging child, you know, that bedtime is just harder. And that also mm-hmm. then, right, think about the arrow going the way of to moms, that makes mom struggle a bit more too. So there's right. a lot of potential explanations for the direction of things. But that, again, mm-hmm. was something that really popped out in our findings and our data in the past month or so is this sleep the sleep environment seems to be less ideal for children. And then finally, we've been looking at screen time and sort of mom's use of screens around her children and limits on child screen time. And again, as you would maybe expect, moms with poor self-regulation or, or weaker self-regulation capacity, they're using screens around their child much more themselves. Like they tend to be on their phones more. They tend to use screens to sort of calm their children or distract their children. And they tend to not have limits on children's screen time. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because Mm -hmm. putting limits, I I know you all have been taught this, right? Putting limits on children's screen time is really hard. And actually, Mm -hmm. I will tell you, um, one of my master's students is looking at some data. So we have a question in our study of how important are these different parenting behaviors to you, right? Because self-regulation is about goal-directed behavior. So if Mm -hmm. I don't even care about getting a family meal on the table, if I don't even care about setting limits for my child, my self-regulation doesn't matter to that because it's not something I'm trying to achieve. So right. we we sort of adapted a measure, a parent, we call it our parenting priorities measure. And we asked all of our parents, among these 13 common parenting priorities, how how would you rank them? And so we obtained those parenting priorities. We sort of looked in the literature and we did sort of a, a honestly, we put it on Facebook onto different parenting groups of like, what mm. are what are your priorities? What's important to you? And so we got things ranging. There's sort of a cluster of priorities around my child feels love. My child feels safe. Mm-hmm. My child feels happy. There's a cluster around you know, my child is kind to other people. My child does well in school. My child has a spiritual background. I have to say, as someone myself who's not spiritual, I didn't even think of putting that as a parenting priority. And that's why we have to ask for other people's perspectives, right? That a good number of parents said, I want my, it's very important to me that my child has a spiritual or religious foundation. Within all those parenting priorities, we interspersed It's important to me that my child eats a healthy diet. It's important to me that my child's screen time is limited. So I'm saying all this because we just started looking at this data and (laughs) limiting screen time is the lowest 
priority for parents. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, right? Because yeah. we I, there's so much attention to like the right. harms of screens and like don't give kids phones. And, and this is not to say anything about those, but yeah. current parents of preschoolers who at least are in our study are saying there are so many other things that are important to me. Like, you know, it's not saying it's not important, you know, um, on an absolute level, but relative to other things, like making sure my child is safe and making sure my child feels loved and making sure my child is kind and, you know, fair to other people, TV and screens go way to the bottom. Okay, so that was a bit of a variation. But even despite (laughs) the low priority of of limiting screens, we still see that um, self-regulation seems to impede parents' ability to limit their own screen time and set limits on their children. So I think all together is a cluster of things, right? If you think about in a family with a mom with weaker self-regulation, there's more, you know, chaotic and less structured meals. She is relying on screens more. She is sort of encouraging screens for her child. And then, you know, you think about bedtime and there's a real less routines, less consistency. And so we know all those things together are hard on kids, right? And it's not setting them up for success in the best way we could. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember your original question at all, but that that is what we found. That's no, that's all good. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you've you've definitely answered it. I mean, I thought that was so interesting talking about the priorities thing too, because I think we do. I mean, I'm not a parent yet either, but I think just in generally speaking, like from my experience talking to parents and working with parents, I think we do get lost in a lot of those kind of yes. things like screen time and family meals. And of course, they're important. Of course, we know there's a lot of research to support, you know, that it sets yourself, uh, your family and your child up for good health and all those things. But just thinking back to those priorities of like, I want this human to be a good human, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And kind of like yeah. taking it back to that. And I think that's so interesting that you went ahead and asked those questions too, yeah. of like, what are parents' priorities? And it's just, it, I think it's actually kind of amazing how many of them said, like, I want my kid to feel loved and safe and to be yeah. kind to others. It's good. It's yeah. all good. Right. I don't know. This is my bias lens, but I I do think someone should say, I prioritize my child feeling safe and secure over you know, they eat a healthy diet or they have academic achievement, you know, and maybe that's, I get that that's, I don't know, that's a certain culture and um, other parents have different priorities. But I was sort of pleased to see that, that we're not like overly obsessing about things that we, again, are, I think as long as you establish a, a, a foundation for your child mm-hmm. that they feel safe and secure, I think we'll, we'll be in good shape. Yeah, see, it all yeah. comes around. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, too, even what you were mentioning, too, like, you know, the moms that maybe have poor self-regulation, but also have a lot of stress, like they're worried about, are they going to be able to put food on the table? Like it all makes a lot of sense, right? That then that does equal more screens, because if that's how mom's going to get a break, like, you know what I mean? You have Mm -hmm. to do what you have to do to get get by. And I think it just comes back to the fact that, you know, everyone is hopefully trying their best, right? And you have to do what's the best for yourself and your family to be able to get by. Yeah. And if you, again, if you had a choice of, you know, let mom take some time for herself and 
do what she needs to do to keep herself sane and to keep her, you know, stress levels down and emotions in check. I'd rather have that and have the kid on a tablet than have mom feel like, oh my God, they can't watch any TV. And that's just stressing her out more. Like, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I think it's just kind of coming back to like the big picture Mm because it's just so easy to get lost in all of those little things. And so then I think, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, right? But like, well, I think I know the answer. So I was going to say, as people who care about nutrition and feel really strongly that the importance of not only, you know, quality diets, but healthy mm-hmm. relationships with food and healthy relationships mm-hmm. with our body, you know, how do we encourage that and support that when rightfully so parents are dealing with a lot of other stuff, right? And mm-hmm. it's not rising to the top. And I think that, I mean, this is just my perspective because it's what I do. I think that comes back to what are those upstream things that can reduce mom's stress and make food, make healthy food available and make it the easy choice for families. And then mm-hmm. it just doesn't have to be a thing, right? Then it's just the default. And and it doesn't have to be another thing on on parents' plates to try to get right. Right. Yeah, it's like it's almost like tackling some of those factors like stress and lack of sleep, like all those yep. things that influence our self-regulation. And then those things obviously trickle down with the parenting and in other areas of our life too. Yeah. Even as a non-parent, I'm like, I know my self-regulation, if it's not great, uh, might influence my partner in our home too, right? And, oh, and all yeah. of that. So, yeah. <laughs> No, it's fascinating. So to close out the podcast, we like to give families three take-home tips. So what are three take-home tips about self-regulation that you can share with our listeners to help them navigate parenthood while prioritizing their child's well-being and development? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll try to come up with three. I'll go one by one. So my first tip, as we've talked about a lot today together, is the importance of parent self-regulation, right? And the importance of, yes, we all vary in our ability. And a lot of that is not under our control. It comes from our genetics. It comes from our early childhood environment. But there are things that we can do to help ourselves manage our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors better if you feel like that's something that's that's getting in your way. So again, ensuring that you have enough sleep and that you're getting regular activity, that you're, we didn't, gosh, cognitive stuff, like, you know, you're engaged and you're thinking and you're social and that, you know, it's easier said than done, but thinking about ways that you can can get some stress out of your life or or find support for things that are really stressful because that does really wear away at our self-regulation capacity. And I think I was going to say particularly with young children, but honestly, even, you know, my teenager, the days that I'm frustrated and I'm quick to yell or I have no patience do disrupt things. You know, they're normal. I'm a, I'm a human, but <laughs> I'd rather have less of them. So Yes, moms, dads, other caregivers, take time for yourself. It will benefit the whole family if you are able and give yourself more time to engage in behaviors that you know sort of give you more patience, set you up for success, don't get you stuck in in difficult situations. Tip number two. Oh, I have a, a sort of an extension of that. So 
In addition to doing things that can strengthen our self-regulation, we also know that there's ways that individuals who struggle with weaker self-regulation can set their own environments up for success. And these are strategies. um, Often kids with executive function problems try to work with teachers or parents or coaches on. But there are things like, again, I, you know, I said earlier, setting your environment up for success. So if you know that you're someone who, you know, you're exhausted at the end of the day, you come home, you had a plan for cooking dinner, you just don't feel like it, everything's going wrong, you know, something good to think about is what is my plan B? Do I have something else frozen in the freezer? Do I have something else that I can just heat up, even if it's, you know, packaged food or leftovers or something like that, right? Like giving yourself alternatives and allowing yourself that flexibility to, you know, do the alternative. Like Marcianne was talking about her her trip and her, her mom's visit and like giving herself that flexibility to be like, we're just gonna do something else. This isn't working and that's okay. And I think- you know, parents giving themselves that grace and also, you know, not being, trying not to be so rigid in their home that there's only one way, you know, it's either this full gourmet dinner or bust. Cause that's, that's not realistic. And, you know, think of a plan B, think of a plan C. I always tell parents, you know, a turkey sandwich and some baby carrots is a pretty darn good family meal. My gosh, we have lot we even have cereal nights. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like <laughs> you know, you know, it's about eating together and and having low stress and and it's all good. It's not worth it's not worth um stressing yourself out if you have had a tough day. And number 3 in terms of self-regulation. I don't know. I'm just going to say even though we don't have data on this is like you know, get and this is not a new thing, but like, like get your partner involved, get your child involved. Like if you're someone and, and communicate, right? If you are someone who has difficulty being flexible, if you're someone who, um, you know, can't adjust or can't sort of quickly incorporate new circumstances or new information, pass that off to your partner. Like there's no reason, particularly for moms, that they need to be in control of everything. Like that's just... It's it's not helping anyone. So I think if we all share share the emotional and physical load of parenting, we'll be able to weather those self-regulation weaknesses a little better. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing those three tips. I mean, they're definitely with the podcast we're, you know, mostly talking about in the context of parenting, but I think even, you know, without that too, the parenting aside too, these are just such great tips on how to work on our own self-regulation too in other contexts. So mm-hmm. I think that's just so amazing. I definitely, I wrote down all three. So I'm like, I know uh, (laughs) work on the flexibility thing myself as someone that can be a bit rigid. So (laughs) I'm going to try and find some ways to to think about that, but plan B and a plan C. That's, that's a good tip. Yeah, I know. I always think about, I'm like, what is the, and that's sort of a cognitive behavioral therapy thing, right? Like what is the worst that can happen right now? And Mm -hmm. usually it's not that bad. Yeah, and so what? Yeah, it's so what? So what? I mean, especially, I mean, things like dinner. Did we have family dinner tonight? So what? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, all about coming back to that big picture and striking a balance and mm-hmm. doing what works best for, for your family. So thank you so, so much, Dr. Bauer, for taking the time to chat with us about parental self-regulation and the impact on children's growth and nutrition and for sharing your vast knowledge and, and research and expertise with us on the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast. Thank you so much. It was really fun to be here and I am happy to come back and chat some more. You've provided us with such helpful tips and we really hope our listeners can take away some of these useful tips that you've shared and we'll see you all next time.